Mother Knows Death presents External Exams with Nicole and Jemmy. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's external exam on Mother Knows Death. Since we started our podcast, we've had multiple stories in the news relating to skulls being found, and I'm always curious who works on these cases. How, When they're found, where does the skull go? Who determines who this person is that has either been missing or is a victim of a crime? And today we are going to talk to a forensic artist. Her name is Lisa Bailey. And she's coming out with a new book actually today called Clay and Bones. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. This is a thrill because I've been following you the moment I got on Instagram. Yeah, I, so. That's awesome because I've been a huge fan of your work as well. So I'm so glad we finally get to meet in person. It's great. So I like to start off my interviews just trying to get a basis of how people got into their field and what their life has been like their whole entire life, not just their career. So for me, people always think that I was this, they look at me and they think I have tattoos and I was some goth kid that just was obsessed with death and (laughs) slept in a coffin or something. And I obviously I wasn't. Do you, when people find out that that you work with human skulls for a living, do they ever ask you if you were obsessed with death when you were a kid and growing yeah, up? Yeah, they're um it's like, well, oh my god, how did you get that job? And um yeah, you know, were you were you wearing black all the time and, you know, all that goth and um <laughs> I was the absolute opposite. Um you know, I was always drawing as a kid and all that. I loved artwork. But I was painfully shy, like just everybody ignore me. I would not, I was painfully shy. So, and I didn't like anything, uh, blood, guts, and gore, anything gross. Um, so it was kind of surprising, like some of the things that I've seen in my life. And, um, but yeah, I was complete opposite. This, any, anybody that knew me as a kid would be like, what? It's like she ended up doing. Like I wouldn't even dissect. I couldn't dissect the frog in science class. I have my partner. (laughs) That it's really interesting though, because I'm I'm starting to ask this question to funeral directors and other people that kind of work in a similar field to ours, and everyone says the same thing. They they weren't they weren't into it. There was no there was no indication that this is what they were going to do when they grew up. So you're saying that you were artistic when you were a kid. Um, were you were you also interested in science? No, at all? well, I hated I hated science. I did <laughs> I did everything to get. <laughs> no, this is this is great to hear because kids get um, frustrated in school because they they don't they don't understand science or they're not good at math. And then you look and see these adults became scientists yeah. when they got older. So well, it's a good it, story. Um, yeah, I was absolutely. Um, anytime I could make a uh, science project into an art project, I would do that. So. I was the kid who was building volcanoes with baking soda instead of writing a report about volcanoes. Um, so yeah, I, I was completely not interested in science. Um, but well, one thing, if, if, if I can say this, I remember when I was about um, 13, 14, I used to watch all the uh, police shows with my dad. And so on one of the, maybe it was Quincy, they had somebody doing a facial approximation. And I thought, that is so cool. I would love to do that. But this was the 70s, and nobody knew how you would go about that. 
And then, um, or it'd be really cool to be a composite artist. You know, I'd watch, you know, I'm aging myself. So Y50, things like that. So, um, so that, that would be the coolest job on earth. But nobody knew. This was way before computers. And even if there had been computers there at that time, um, there's very little information about how to become a forensic artist. It's a very oddball niche field. So it's really kind of odd that all these years later, it's, it's exactly what I ended up doing. I wasn't aiming for it. It was living my life, doing, um, you know, joining the Navy, all those things that I guess we'll talk about. Uh, I ended up unwittingly being perfectly prepared to be a forensic artist at the FBI. When, when I saw the job posting, it was like, they had my resume. It was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. That's, that's awesome. So let's, let's first talk about the military because I want everyone to get an understanding of how you ended up at the FBI as a forensic artist. So you come from a family that is yes, military, yes. correct? And so when you were growing up, was that just like, I'm, I'll am i be joining the military when I get older? Or when did you decide you were going to join the military? I, I figured when I was about 17, that's probably where I was going to go. Um, there were five kids in our family, and college was just never talked about. Like, there were, it was like, that was something the officer's kids went to college. Like, my, you know, my dad was a master sergeant. Wonderful guy, you know, dad. Um, I'm, yeah, I had the best father in the world, I have to had the best father. Anyway, um, so college just wasn't an option. So it was like, there was nothing in Dover. I lived in, you know, that's where the Dover Air Force Base um, in Delaware. That's, if people have heard of that, that's where they bring the remains from overseas of soldiers. They have the morgue there at Dover Air Force Base. And um, there was just really, there were no other, there was really nothing there. So the military was really the best option to, to get out and get a job, be trained in something, get college benefits. And um, it was the best thing for me. I mean, I stopped being shy. <laughs> I learned how to stand up for myself. Because <laughs> uh, if you don't, you'll get mowed down. And obviously the military is um, uh, male, male-dominated, you know. And um, But it was the best thing for me. So best thing for me. And you're... So your dad yes, was in yeah, the he Air, was Force? Air Force twenty six years. And and what made you decide that you were going to go into the um, Navy? So my dad was in the Air Force. My mother was in the Women's Army Air Corps in the fifties. My oldest brother and my sister were in the Air Force, and another brother was in the Marines. And I thought, well, I have to do the Navy so I can, <laughs> you know, round it out. And um, they honestly and please. Take my age into account. I was 18. They had the cutest uniforms. So that was I'm serious. I'm serious. That's what 18-year-olds think about. It's like, oh, my God, it's cute uniforms. Um, but, yeah, it just appealed to me. It just appealed to me. Um, yeah. So when – I don't – I'm not 100% familiar. I, I know no, I'll probably no. sound like an idiot to people that are in military families. I just – I'm not familiar with how it works, really. So you join the Navy, and while you're there – what what are you doing as a job? Do you do they try to find something that you're good at, or they just give you any kind of task and you have um, to learn you that? Uh, you figure out what you want to be before you join. So you take a test, which is a general placement test, kind of, you know, sort of an IQ, but um, so you get a general placement test, 
And then they take out this, you know, big book. They're, they're the recruiters are trying to get you to join something that they need. Like they tried to talk me into becoming, uh, to going to uh, nukes. And I was like, I don't, I don't do math. I can't do nukes. Um, and I, I guess I scored well enough for the intelligence field. And so one of the recruiters said, well, why don't you be a linguist? And I'd never taken a language before. So 18 years old, I joined as a Russian linguist. And they, um, but so the, the thing is, any military kid knows this. You do not join the military unless you have a guaranteed school. Because otherwise, you are at their mercy and they can do whatever they want with you. So when you join, you, you join, you go through boot camp, and then you go to your school. And I was immersed in Russian for uh, eight hours a day. 47, five days a week, 47 weeks. And that was just the one part of school. And there was another section right after like four more months. Um, but if I had, um, if I had flunked out of that, then they could have, that I'd be chipping paint. I'd be peeling potatoes. They can do, they can do anything they want with you, whatever they need. It's true. I mean, it's, it's true. And, um, so I joined as a Russian linguist and had no idea, but, and I was, you know, they would say, oh, my God, you're going to have to study four or five hours a night. There's a 50% attrition rate. And I don't know. I took to it like a duck to water. It was no problem. It's, I think it's the art, artist and the visual. Um, to me, Russian was a very organized language, and it made sense to me. And um, I could just see the words, and I couldn't think of a word. I would remember seeing it in my textbook. And then I would go, oh, okay, I could read it in my mind and answer. So... Um, that's so yeah cool. my my girlfriend <laughs> and how long did you do that how long did uh, that you do that seven weeks that was in uh, monterey california a beautiful place to be stationed by the way it's gorgeous so you're in the navy doing this as a career for how i long? ended up doing six years um the typical enlistment is four years but because my school was basically a year and a half they wanted you to have it wasn't mandatory, but they offered a bonus if you extended for two years. So that's what I did. So I was in for six years total. That was the perfect time, okay. <laughs> perfect amount of time, because by then I was ready <laughs> to get out. And from there, you started working at Johns yes, Hopkins, um, right? And what was, did you do there? Um, I did administrative work. I was a contractor there at the Applied Physics Laboratory. Uh, because the, the one great thing is I had a very high clearance. So I was very marketable in the DC area. Um, data processing hated it to the depths of my soul. I am, I hate it, hate it. Uh, but they had a really good education program. So that's when they started. Um, I had gotten some college credits while I was in the Navy. And then I just started going to college part time or working full time. And I did that for a total of seven years. It took forever. And then a position to open up for a graphic artist at Hopkins. And I applied and I got it. And it was just a transition. So when I was, you know, doing the data processing, yeah, you know, so I, I heard about an opening and that's how I, that's how I transitioned. It's like all of a sudden I was, I was a graphic artist and I loved it. I loved it. So you're working uh -huh. as a graphic artist and you, what kind of graphic art were you doing for the, for the hospital or the school? Like um, stuff since like this that? is for the uh, Applied Physics Laboratory, which is ironic because I hated physics in high school. But <laughs> so they were, um, they call them Beltway Bandits, but um, all the contractors that work for the military for Washington, D.C., I mean, they're, they're based, uh, Hopkins is based in uh, Maryland. But you would have, like, I worked in the submarine technology department. So some of them would be, 
um, you know, scenarios of, you know, here are, um, you know, planes flying and they're shooting this radar and sound or whatever. It's very technical. And all I had to do is illustrate it. So we're using 3D, 3D software and Photoshop uh, to basically do like the artist depiction of technology that they wanted to get funding for. Um, that was part of it. I mean, that was part of it. It might be doing uh, doing an illustration of something that somebody was inventing, and um, the and it wasn't even actually all military because in the submarine technology they were using that technology for um, for medical for like uh, heart problems. I, I won't be able to speak intelligently about it because I'm <laughs> my my no, but my brother loves. It's cool though because I a lot of people don't think about all those different things that go into college programs and and things that there's artists that are helping out with that and that's really cool. So how did you hear about this job that came up at the FBI and what was it posted as? Um, it was posted as? as an illustrator, so it was uh, um, they have what they call GS levels in um, in the federal government. So this was a GS ten, which is a good but you know a good kind of rank. Um, and it was an illustrator. I was actually, um, I was, I loved my job at Hopkins. I loved everybody I work with, but I just happened to be at the Dunkin' Donuts looking through a Washington Post that somebody had left on the table. And I looked, I flipped, flipped up in the classifieds and I saw an FBI seal and I was like, what's that? And then I read it and I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And this sounds so cool. And there was nothing in that because it was a junior position. Um, nothing about skulls or anything then, but it was doing demonstrative evidence for courtroom trials, um, you know, things like that, and composite sketches that you could work your way into if you got promoted. So I, I didn't think I would get it. I thought there's going to be hundreds of people applying for this. I don't have a chance, but maybe I'll get to see the inside of the FBI because they'll have to interview me because literally my, they wanted, um, and this, actually, I want to remember this for um, for later in the conversation, but they wanted you able to, like, draw with pencil, no computers, no 3D software, no design software. My degree was in design. So they wanted they wanted everything. And at Hopkins, I, I did all that. I did design. I did 3D illustrations and, and stuff. So um, I applied, and this was before... The, uh, this was 1997, so um, it was. I mailed in my resume, you know, paper. <laughs> I sent it FedEx because I was terrified it would get lost. And I heard nothing for like six months or something. And I thought, well, they. I thought they oh, filled wow. it. Like everybody asked, you know, my sister would ask me. I was like, I guess somebody else got it. And then um, one day I was working on a rush job and I got a phone call and somebody said, "I'm from the FBI," and my heart stopped. <laughs> and he said, we've got your application. We'd like to interview you. So oh my God, I, exciting. Flipped. I flipped. So we said it's um, down to you and three other people. And I had a phone interview a couple of days later. I thought that was the preliminary interview. It wasn't. It was the interview. So um, a couple of days after the phone interview, he called me back at work and he said, the job's yours if you want it. And I oh nearly God. lost my mind. I nearly lost my mind. Yeah, that was. <laughs> so how, so from the time you sent in your resume until the time you got the job, how long was that? It was that? unusual situation. It was three years. 
And um, so it was during, okay, I applied in 97. So um, they were trying to get me in before a rumored hiring freeze and, you know, September 30th, end of the fiscal year. So September 30th, yes, hiring freeze, Congress couldn't decide on the budget, so all hiring has stopped. So then for two years, I'm sitting around going, you know, somebody like approved the budget. This was during the Bush and Gore presidential thing and nothing could get figured out. So so it was finally in, um, it was September 2001, I remember the day, it was a Friday, and the agent came into the office and said, everything's done, welcome to the FBI. But I didn't get to, I didn't start till two months later. So you get, so you get hired in September of 2001. And then what happens four days after you get Um, hired? I still wasn't in yet. Like I was hired. They, I had the offer letter. I had everything, but there was still, you know, the wheels of the government moved slowly. So of course, when 9-11 happened, I thought I was desperate to get in there because the artists, there were working 12 hour shifts. They were just working around the clock. And it still took some time. So I wasn't able to actually physically walk in the door until November, until two months later. But still, uh, they were back to a normal schedule. I was still working on everything for, you know, a lot of things for 9-11. So um, there was that. So what kind of things, like what kind of things would a person in your position do as it relates to 9-11? I Okay, what did we do? Oh, so we had to, we scanned, um, you know, all of the victim photos. You would think that there would be, and I was a beautiful digital copy somewhere, but again, it was 2001, not everybody had all that stuff. So we were scanning, scanning, cleaning up photos of all the victims. We were making presentations for uh, Director Mueller and for the White House. Uh, uh, we were doing interactive presentations. Like one of the ones I was, um, there was a lead artist because I was brand new, but uh, some of the senior artists would be doing, you know, uh, layouts, you know, diagrams of the planes and where every person was sitting. And there would be a link to the voice calls, like some of the phone calls from people. It was, it was, trust me, it was something to walk into. Um, and actually, um, one of, when I had a coworker, but um, uh, a scientist that had worked at Hopkins was actually killed during, during that. I found that out that they, later the day after um so when i went when i was at the bureau it was just very surreal it's like i'm scanning pictures and then there's a picture of the person that i knew like i know many people after 9 11 like they wanted to do something like what can i do and at least i felt like well i'm here i'm doing something um you know helping with the presentations for because they were going you know the uh prosecuting zacharias masawi so i worked on some of those you know the presentations the courtroom courtroom things uh so it was it was anything related to 9/11 that took up the bulk of my time the first year. What are some things when you started working there that a regular person would kind of be surprised by cuz obviously you walked in there and you didn't really know much. <laughs> you just applied for some job in the newspaper and you're like, "Cool, I'll be doing some kind of art for the FBI." And you walk in after one of the biggest investigations in United States history. Like what what happened? Like, what are some things that kind of blew your mind that you didn't really realize happened behind the scenes? It was on some. Well, uh, my my supervisor was walking me through the office, and he had a. He said, "This is where we keep all the skulls." And I was like, "You have skulls in there?" I, that was because that was not in the job description, which was fine. 
but uh, that kind of blew me away. Just seeing the real work, you've seen things on TV, you know, you're, you know, you're watching police shows and everything, and then going inside the FBI and going, oh my God, this is real, where it really happens, and seeing people working in, um, you know, scraping clothing for, for hairs and fibers and, and things like that. It was, it was surreal is all I can say. It was surreal to be there because everybody's normal people. They're just walking around like, you know, this is their job. Um, but to be on the ins, to be on the inside, it was, it was, yeah, it was surreal. Like I was, I kept pinching myself. I was like, I can't believe I'm here. It was, yeah, it was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled. Do they have like one central office or is, are there other branches throughout the country that do this work as well? Or is it one place okay, so like that? The way the FBI is organized, there's the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. And then they have field offices. So every state has a, every state, most every state has a field field office. So you could say that the most of the casework is done by the agents in the field offices. So even though the, Washington, um, even though the FBI headquarters is in Washington, D.C., there's also WFO, the Washington field office. So, um, and then they have legal attaches all over the world. So the, but the forensic art, we were actually, our division was the FBI laboratory. So you can imagine the, the organizational tree of the FBI is, goes on forever. So, um, so I was part of the FBI and laboratory division, and we eventually moved down to Quantico. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. So when you when you started, you they knew that you had some kind of a background in art, but you weren't specifically trained to do what you ended up doing. So when you started working there, did they require you to go to art school, or did someone teach you like on the job training, or was it a combination? Of it was of a little things? combination. I mean, they, you know, I submitted the portfolio, so they saw my drawing ability and all that. Um, it was basically learning how to apply those skills to forensics. So I had done plenty of floor plans and diagrams and things at Hopkins, but this you had to think of it as it going to the courtroom. And so how to make sure that this information is presented in a way that the jury can understand. Um, so it's clear and unbiased. So I would shadow sometimes like shadow another artist, just they would be working on a case and I would see, you know, see what they were doing. Then also they had, um, the big thing was the FBI forensic facial imaging class. And that was three weeks long. And that was training in composite drawings and age progressions and facial approximation. So that was my first time. Um, that's when I fell in love with skulls and facial approximation was during that class. I thought, this is, this is the best thing ever. And because I was, um, because I'm still a new hire, you know, I wasn't able to do facial approximation right away. I mean, you have to kind of, you know, work up to that. But, um, that's when I fell in love with it and, from then on, I was just, I, I learned, I did everything I could to learn anything, everything about facial approximation. Cause I want, because I wanted to do it later when I, when I got promoted. Isn't it kind of cool when you look back at your childhood and you said that you did see an episode of Quincy and you saw them doing that, that if, the, if the internet maybe existed, cause Cause think about this: if you were if you were a fourteen year old kid and you saw a TV show that did that, all you'd have mm -hmm. to do on Google is, you know, what job can I get where I do this, yeah. and it'll pop up. But when 
I mean, the same thing happened with me. There was no internet when I was trying to figure out what I was doing with my life either. So it's it's like kind of cool how people got their story w- without having that at their fingertips and got to where they were. Did you when you started working at the FBI over twenty years ago? Did you were you one of the only women working there, or what? Did, or do you think that there was a lot of women working there at the time, or has that changed over the course of um, twenty years? As far years? as the, well, there's. As far as the FBI overall, um, it depends between agents and support personnel. So I was a support personnel. So in our um, the graphic unit where I worked, and that is not the official name. I don't. I'm not giving official names of FBI units just for anybody who's worried about it. So in the graphic unit, they're about half, you know 50-50 men and women, and our official title was visual information specialist. But not everybody in there would do composites or age progressions or uh, facial approximations. Some did more uh, crime scene, like going out diagramming uh, crime scenes, doing video. Um, you know, more of the more of the technical aspect than others. So every every artist in there had kind of their specialty. We had to be able to do everything at least at a base level. But then people kind of fall into what they're best at. And thankfully, the supervisors then they saw that and they're like, okay, well. Lisa loves sculpts, and she's putting in the work, so that's the direction I went. Others just had very amazingly technical minds and were able, like especially on the um, for the Masawi trial, some of the presentations they did were just remarkable, remarkable. Um, things that maybe with the software now might be a tad easier, but in 2001, it's incredible what they did. I think it's cool that you're talking about trials that we're all familiar with hearing in the news and everything. Um, Working in the hospital, we have to comply with HIPAA regulations, which is to protect patient privacy. Is there something similar in the FBI where you're kind of, you're allowed to talk about stuff, but you really can't talk about too much, so you can't figure out exactly who you're talking about? Um, Yes, I mean... We all have, we have the highest level clearance, a top secret. I had um, what's called top secret with the SCI, special compartmented, so it was kind of up there. But because I had been in the military, it was, the FBI is not like the military, but it was the same thing. It's like, you're working in law enforcement, you have a clearance, you keep your mouth shut. That was just, security was drilled into our heads all the time. It's like, keep your mouth shut. So you don't go out and talk about work out in a bar or something. You just, you just don't do it. And... Um, you know, they they didn't have a rule against identifying yourself as an FBI employee online, um, but I never did. I mean, some people would go, I'm an FBI forensic artist and have it all over their social media, and I never did that. I, I'm hardly on social media now, and I, I never put that I was at the FBI. I just, you know, like, why bring attention? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't see anything. Yeah, exactly. What could come of this? So, yeah, I did so you said that you they've picked up that you specialized in skulls. So just can you I first I want to know, like, what what's your work schedule? Do you go to work just nine to five Monday yeah. through Friday? Is it part time? Do you, Are you on call? And then secondly, I want to know when you walk into work every day and this might change from day to day. But like what what do you sit down and do? Do you sit at a desk? Do you stand in a lab? Like give us some 
explanation of what a typical work day would be um, for you? So I would say that, well, the first half of my, my career, it's basically nine to five. You can, you can slide the schedule a little bit like six to three thirty. You can slide that a bit, but um, it's very disappointing for anybody that sees all the awesome sets like on CSI and Bones. We do not work in cool offices. They're, they're cubicles. <laughs> um, the cubicles, the furniture's old. That's, that's just what it's like. Um, so when I, the, my career can basically be divided into nine-year blocks, you know, the, the two blocks. So the, the first half, yeah, you just you walk in, you sign in, you get coffee, you check your email, and you just, that was before I was working on Skulls, and the supervisor has a number of cases assigned to you, and you just sort of juggle them based on court dates. And then the prosecutor might call up and say, guess what, we're going to court a month early, and then you have to swap things around. So sometimes you're juggling uh, we were not on call. Um, on on call employees, I don't know a lot about this, but uh, you know there would be a schedule, so you knew when you were on call. Um, and I guess there was a some a different pay pay structure or something. I'm not too familiar with it, but I know it exists. Um, but you were expected if there was. You weren't, you didn't want to say no. <laughs> the FBI says, you know, we really need you to get on a plane tonight and go somewhere. You're like, okay, I will. Um, so you're not, you're not technically on a call, but yes, you, I mean, it's just like the military. I was used to that. I mean, the military only owns you 24 seven. You might work a five day week and get a weekend, but if you get a phone call that you need to go somewhere, then you go somewhere. Like, um, do you, I don't know if you remember it was, um, all the, the shootings on the East Coast with um, not the member's name, uh, the sniper shootings. If you remember that vaguely, it was yeah, I, it's funny because I was just talking. I was just talking about that today. Actually, it's it's so funny how you don't talk about things <laughs> for years, and then today I was just talking to my husband this morning about the DC yeah. sniper and stuff, and now you're talking about it, which is interesting. So, what what? What involvement did you have Boy. with that case? <laughs> um, the first night I was called and said, somebody somebody saw something. There's a presentation in the morning. You have to go into work. And so it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm driving to headquarters. Or I remember it was, it was like something, some information came in. You need to do a presentation. You need to whatever. So that, yeah, that was, that was for anybody that worked in the D.C. area, it was, it was scary because at that time, um, you know, I, I took the bus into D.C. So you're standing in a long bus line and all you can think of is like, I'm a perfect target because this guy's still on the loose. You know, it turns out it was two, but you were just it was it was scary. It was like, oh, my God, I joined the FBI. And now now this now now there's, you know, snipers and everything. So, oh, I. Yeah, my husband. What 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 my husband and I were talking about this morning actually was what a crazy time yes. period that was, because it was like. 9-11 <laughs> happened, and then didn't the sniper thing happen at the same time as Hurricane Katrina? I feel like it was, like, all within a couple months it of might each have other. Been. Just, it might have been. Like, just craziness, and you're just like, and what then is anthrax. going on in the world and then right anthrax. Yeah. Oh, and anthrax, so, too, of course. Yeah, that was just, like, a, a crazy yeah, so time. so things like that, like, you know, even with those anthrax letters, you know, we would might get those in and scan them, and they would be in part of a presentation we would give. Um, one fun thing I got to do on, I shouldn't call it fun, but it was kind of cool. Um, so during the, the, the trial for the sniper shooting, the model unit, they took, you know, they, um, 
they would hide in the trunk and they drilled the hole and they were shooting people. They were inside the trunk and then shooting with the rifle out. So uh, the model shop got a car, cut it in half, and they restructured that to use in court so they could show exactly, you know, how how they would like oh, wow. climb into the uh, climb into the trunk. And then um, another a coworker and I, he was the lead artist. We went over to um, the driving training uh that they have for agents where they get to drive fast and chase bad guys and so we were having to measure one of the identical cars to use that for the present for the courtroom uh courtroom exhibits so that was you know i got to work on that a little bit it was interesting yeah, yeah. that's that's us i know it doesn't it's it sounds kind of weird to say it's cool but scientifically and just to be involved with a case like that, I think it's okay it to is. say that it's cool. Yeah. I would, I think and it's I cool. And ac- I actually, I'd completely forgotten about that. I just completely forgotten. It's like, oh yeah, I totally grand Zeppelin. It's, it's, sometimes I forget some of the things I've done and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, I've done all yeah. this cool stuff and it just, it's every day of your yeah. life, right? So what, when you say composite sketch and all these words, that's, like, could you explain what some of those things are, what you would actually do sitting there as an artist to to come up with that stuff? Like, how do you do a composite sketch? Do you have to yes. interview people to get that information? Yes. So you personally mm-hmm. would interview yes. them? Um, it, yeah, it was. Okay. And uh, 50 years ago, it was, it was different. The FBI agents would do the interview. That's a whole other story. But yes, we would, we would go in, we would have um, a book of facial references. So we interview the person, but you're just basically trying to talk to them and get to, to relax. We're not in any uniform. So you're just, you know, you're just a regular person, which, you know, somebody's been through something horrible. I mean, I, I did a few sexual assault cases and it was just, it was very hard for me. Um, just, I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to say anything wrong. And this person's just had the worst moment of their life, you know? So, um, so it's not like a police center. Yeah. And you don't want them to be visualizing it, yeah. right? Like you feel bad, but the, you're trying, you're trying to, to help them. It. You have to look at it yeah. that way. That, um, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, they're trying to forget that face. On one hand, they want to forget it. On the other hand, they want a representation of it. So they can go, see, this is what that SOB looks like. Now go get them. I mean, that it was, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So, yeah, so we would, we would just a free recollection, like, tell me what you remember. And it wasn't always just facial features. Sometimes it could be, you know, something they smelled or, or anything, because it can all, it can all tie together. Um, and then we have facial references. So they, let's say they said, that's, I can't speak. Let's say the witness describes he had a really long face and a big nose. And big bushy eyebrows. By the way, that would be a wonderful composite to do because average-looking people are the worst to try to draw. If somebody says, <laughs> "Well, it's like," then you feel like you're ending up drawing Charlie Brown because everything is just so nothing. So they said he had a really long face. We had a catalog of uh, uh, there were arrest photos that had been organized. So then there's you know head shape and then what was most similar. And it's a composite because you're piecing it together. Um, somebody called it once like Mr. Potato Head, which is forensic artists hate that, but there is a little bit of truth into it that you're basically piecing things together. Um, so we develop, uh, we develop a general sketch, just keeping it rough and then show it to them. And is this on the right track? Do you, would you recognize this person? Like, what do we need to do? 
So then it's, then it's constant erasing and moving and the eyes need to be closer together. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it takes like two to three hours to generally. And when I started, we were doing a pencil and paper. I don't know if they still are, but obviously now with, you know, digital pads and everything, just my opinion, that is the way to go. Like, there's no reason, I don't think, um, to be using pencil and paper in a situation like that when you could much more easily draw it on a pad. And then instead of having to erase an eye and move it half an inch, you just scoot it up with the cursor or the, you know, move the layer a little bit. That's my opinion. Unpopular in some corners. <laughs> yeah, and plus you could probably, yeah, like easily show it on a screen yeah. better and everything like that. Um, how often... When you do these kind of drawings, do you uh, you ever get to see the person that gets arrested? Are you ever like, damn, I did a good job. Like they they look exactly like the yeah, drawings. Um, Does that happen often or not really? Um, it's it's kind of a crapshoot. And in those instances, um, you really have to say, and this is not this is not like oh being humble, but. The witness is the most important person. Uh, there's like a, a train of thought in Friends of Guard that you could have a fabulous artist and a bad witness and a great witness and a bad artist and the bad artist will produce a better drawing. Because if you have a great witness, the quality of the drawing isn't as important as the features that are being described. So sometimes like a, you know, an artist, you could do portrait level work. It's a terrible listener. And it's not paying attention to what the witness wants. And they make a beautiful drawing, but it doesn't look like what was in the witness's head. And that does nobody any good. So having a good witness is golden. A witness says, I don't remember his nose. I don't remember. I don't remember. It was average. That's like pulling teeth. And it's, it's hard for everybody. It's hard for everybody. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by The Gross Room. Starting on February 9th to February 23rd, The Gross Room will be on sale for only $20 for the entire year of gross. You will have access to celebrity death dissections, high-profile death dissections, thousands of videos, photos, articles, all the way dating back to 2019. You definitely need to join this Valentine's Day. Please go to thegrossroom.com for more info and sign up. So when you're off work, like I know, for example, for me, I'll just be, it just happened to me a couple weeks ago. I'm just sitting there with one of my friends and I notice pathology on people all the time. And it's hard for me to like shut that off. I feel bad about it because I just can't shut it off. If I notice someone has like a weird bump or something's going on with them, I can't shut it off. So the fact that you look at skulls for a living, right? Do you just kind of dissect every single person you look at and think about like what their skull looks like yes <laughs> in a word yes um, <laughs> it's a joke between me and my husband that um he we'd be sitting there talking and i he would notice that my gaze was off and he would say you're looking at my skull aren't you and i was like so sorry but just trying to figure <laughs> things out you know trying to figure out like okay this there's a feature what how would it translate in flesh and the funniest thing is to get a group of friends of artists together. Um, one time there was a group of us at a conference and our waiter just had the most unusually shaped face. And we were all just like, it's like, stop staring, stop staring. Cause we just, 
we were curious. We were curious that it's it's one of those things because it's it's a fascination. Like, how does the skull translate to the face? What causes that? Um, it's like a puzzle, and so that just kind of appealed to me. It's really cool though, because I don't know if you've ever been yes. to the Muter Museum in Philly, but they have a whole wall of skulls, and you just look at them, and you're like, oh my god, this yeah. this really could show that how people yeah. look so different. You, but I think when you're a regular person and you just see a skull like on TV or whatever, you don't really realize how many differences there are just with the size and with the, the orbits and everything and how it changes between cultures. Is that something that you had to learn too about is this person from European descent or Asian <coughs> descent, like exactly. things like that? Um, well, the, anthrop the anthropologists would do that because the, they have an artist has no way near the training that would take to be able to determine things like that. So the anthropologist sees it one way. They see it, of course, in the scientific way. They will say, you know, the height, um, you know, sex, age, stature, um, ancestry. The, as an artist, when I first started, I thought, wow, skulls looked alike. And of course, as soon as you see two skulls together, you're like, oh my God, I couldn't have been more wrong. And the first time I went to the body farm, we saw 20 all in a row. And I almost was like a kid in a candy store. It was, and I've been to the mutter, and um, it was just fascinating. And yes, you're standing there going, "Okay, I'm I'm, I'm putting a face on I'm in my head." Um, but yeah, it's that's the key to why we look the way we do. Is it all starts with the skull, and um, you know, people people think, "Oh, how can they do that?" Like you're just making things up. And it's like, no, there's a lot of information from just your skull. You know, there's. There's some things that, you know, are more um, left up to artistic interpretation. Well, I would say that. You have to make, you have to downplay what you don't know and play it when you do know. So if the anthropologist says, this person broke their nose and it didn't heal right and it was really crooked, so really emphasize that. Um, or I could just look at the skull and know it's like, well, they have close set eyes, um, far apart eyes. So it's it's the... It's the overall look of the face. It's the head shape, where the features are. See, we, we don't know everything. We don't know a lot of things with the facial approximation, but we know where the features are. We can determine some things like the shape of the nose, the length, things like that. And you can never get, I've had some that were like scary close that were really like, wow, you know, the anthropologist and I were very happy with. Um, but you, you can't get perfection, and that's actually not necessary because in a facial approximation, you're looking for recognition from somebody, a family member, that is looking for that person. You, know, you could do a facial approximation. It's going to look like 50 people. It could be 50 different people. But if a family member is looking for their missing brother and they see that sculpture, you just they could key on it and go, okay, that looks like my brother, or that's familiar. That's, that's what we're going for. That's so, it's just so interesting to me. I'm reading a book with my daughter right now, uh, a National Geographic book about mummies. Oh, okay. And they're talking about how they, they found um, this one on Mount Everest. I think he was labeled the Iceman yes. or something. But they were showing how they took his skull and they recreated it to what he would look like. And, you know, my daughter's 10, so she was just like, well, how did they know? And <laughs> it was cool. They were, I think in the book they said that you couldn't really tell from the no the nose and the ears maybe what as much what they would look like but the they the guy was from european descent and they were able to do the 
what is it called? The facial approximations or whatever based on that, like how thick this soft tissue would be in certain areas of the face and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So we uh, we generally follow, we have tissue depth tables just um, as, a, as a guideline. Uh, ears, ears are just, we know where they are, but they don't really, uh, they're not important for identification because if somebody had big ears, you're not going to know that from the skull. Uh, things like the nose, as long as the skull, as long as the nose is fairly intact, we can tell a lot about it. We could tell if somebody has a long crooked nose that points up and goes to the left. The problem is in the forensic world is that, um, a lot of them are homicides. So if they were shot in the face or, or beat up or, you know, the skull has been out in the elements for how many years, um, little tiny bones get eaten up. So the nasal spine, um, which you know is one of the th- one of the features that we look at to determine the position of the nose, the, the direction up or down or average. That is, I would say, nine times out of ten, that was gone by the time it got to me, because you know skull had been out there five ten years, and you know uh, a squirrel chewed it off or, or something, or it had been you know the person had been um, you know due trauma or something. So the skulls that forensic artists get are um they've been through a lot <laughs> they've, they've been through a lot uh, by that nature yeah, they're not like textbook yeah, skulls yeah so um yeah so that was that was part of the reason why i went to the body farm not to jump ahead but that was part of the reasons to try to learn more about what this nose looks like you know the nasal aperture and then how might that look in life and um yeah so the um so that's the difference between you know the forensic ones and the his- Historical ones, you know, sometimes historical ones aren't in great shape either, but um, you're not you're not looking for an ID, so it's not like there's anything on the line. It's not because fish, yeah, there, yeah, there's, yeah, exactly. there's, there's no, it's not a high stakes thing. And it's just cool it is to so see cool. what the guy might have looked like, but it's, <laughs> it's <not>. fascinating. It's, <laughs> it's, let's get on to talking about so you, your book, it comes out yes. today, which is it's awesome. Thank you. I read it and so did my daughter. We oh loved my gosh, it. Thank you. What made you decide that you were going to write a book or write a book about this topic? Like, what is your book about? Is it about your life? Is it about a combination? Um, it's it's about my time in the FBI. And I can honestly say that I was never going to write a book. Just I was an artist. It was like, I'm not an author. I am not going to write a book. Um, however, after what happened to me, um, there's it's sort of somebody asked me to describe the book, and I said, "Well, it's kind of a cross between Bones and Aaron Brockovich <laughs> because it's it's my career, but then it's oh my God, the battles that you have to fight um, when there's discrimination and harassment and the crazy links that can so go to." So let's get into talking. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. So. You had your career, you obviously have a strong passion for it, and you decided to create a website. What exactly did you do on this website? Was it to kind of teach others about forensic art? Yeah, it was purely that. Um, I'm going to make this point because I'm probably into a forensic artist that I know is listening to this on and make it clear. So in the FBI, you need permission for pretty much everything. So um, I had permission to, you know, you get permission to run a website. Um, I chose to keep it anonymous because I didn't want to have FBI blared everywhere. Um, and it, that I don't have that website up anymore, but it was called Ask a Forensic Artist because I was getting like phone calls and emails from people. You know, I want to be a forensic artist. How do you do it? And there was no source out there. Just like when I was 12 or 13 and, and saw 
there was no resource. So I wanted to create a resource for people who wanted to be a friends of artists to help them get in the field. Which is, which is, yeah, that was, that was my whole thing. So, um, I still actually have, I could push a button and make the website live again, which I I might do. Um, if I, if I, you know, you should, yeah. Um, but it was everything it was like, you know, what, what training do I need? Do I need a degree? Um, you know, where are the jobs? How do you get into it? It was, it was purely educational. And, um, I don't know. I just, I'm the kind of person, if I find out something cool, I want to like grab the first person. I go, this I found out. Like, you know, I look, you know, did you know what happens when the skull does this? It's just, I don't know. It's just kind of in my nature. I just, I loved it so much that I just kind of wanted to share it. And like I said, literally, I would get phone calls and emails, people, um, not through me, but um, my name got asso- my name got associated with the FBI because sometimes they would have us do interviews and everything. And I was getting phone calls and emails like, "How can I be a forensic artist at work?" And I was like, "I'm sorry, I can't. I can't sit here and tell you how to be a forensic artist." So that was part of it too. To put the information out there. And what happened? So you have this website, and it's it's awesome for people that want to learn about your profession. And what happened? Oh, you mean the complaint? So someone that was an, a former FBI employee complained about no, it? No. Um, she had taught. We would have guest instructors at the FBI Academy. So for the facial imaging course, um, the, they would have you know FBI people teaching, but then also there would be guest instructors. So she had taught at the Academy, and... Um, I got called into my boss's office one day and she saw my website and she didn't like it. And she decided to write a complaint letter to somebody way up in the FBI. And I got called on the carpet and I actually didn't get in trouble for that. I mean, I had to explain myself. I didn't feel like I was in trouble at the moment. It turns out I, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know it was coming. And but, but, did, but you had permission to do yeah. it, right? Yeah. So now all of a sudden it was a problem. It was, for me, it was, why is this person doing this? Because what did I ever do to her? And I am not doing anything wrong. And, you know, I just spoken to my super, like, they knew I had a website. Um, I, I believe I still have the email in case it's like, this is not bad memory. So <laughs> uh, my supervisor sent me the email. So it was, it was a complaint letter. Uh, I think this is unprofessional. Da, 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 da. And then there was a P.S., um, the bloggers and FBI employee. And it's like, well, I didn't have that on my website on purpose. And I guess that was supposed to be a zinger. I don't know. I, I, all I can say is, I mean, I was devastated. I was devastated because it was like, I'm not, all I'm trying to do is, you know, educate about forensic art. I, I guess all I can say is there, um, you know, some people, women who, support other women and others who don't and i've i've had the same exact things really? happen to me trust me okay. so i 100 percent understand yeah actually when my daughter read your book she was like this lady has your exact life like <laughs> she she just said it was it was crazy and um because she had read it first and she's just like you just won't believe it she just went through the same exact stuff that you, oh, that really? you go through you know yeah um and it's and it's always just I think that people are jealous because they didn't have the idea first or something. I don't know. Just yeah. haters, people that are bored. I don't know what it is, yeah. but there's 
there's people that will use all of their energy to try to destroy you. It's 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 really it's really crazy what yeah, people do. It, it is. It's it's I don't understand. It's like you know the what is it the crabs in the barrel? You know, it's, you know trying to drag any person down. It's like I don't get it. I I don't understand. And you know, it's like I'm no competition. It's like, but then people are like, well, you're at the FBI. It's like, well, she has an awesome career. Like, I don't get it. But, you know. How did, so did she somehow know that you were running the site? Because if you were anonymous on your site, like how did, right? How did she, how would she know to say, oh, this person's an employee of the FBI if you never said that you were? Oh my God, the fact that you asked this. Um, Like I said, we were friends slash acquaintances. Like I had met her in person many times. She wrote to me and she said, oh, is, is this your, is this your website? I see this new, his Ask a Friend Sith Artist, is that you? And I went, I remember writing back, you fly fox, you figured it out. Like thinking it was fun and games. Like, oh, you figured it out, it was oh me. Oh my God. And then literally like two days later, I got called into the office. And that is my hand to God what happened. And that's why I was like, I was like, damn it, she fooled like, <laughs> it's like, I didn't know it was you, but now you just confirmed it. So yeah, that was... Yeah. And I just, I've had an anonymous. What, what a weirdo. Uh, yeah. I was just, you know. So after that, <laughs> the, your work found out about it, things started getting bad for you. Thing, things, essentially. things were turning because there was a lot of transition during that time. So um, it was like in the summer of 20, uh, 2009, like everything. So there was reorganization, had new supervisors. Um, and so it was kind of like the perfect storm of things. And uh, my new supervisors, one in particular, just did not like forensic artists. And, you know, he had, uh, he was a photographer. He ran, he ran this photo group and he had forensic artists stopped in his lap and he didn't like it. And he was very open about the fact that he did not like having forensic artists in his unit. Um, so he had an axe to grind, uh, you know, and especially against me. I don't, I don't know. People ask me, like, why was he picking on you? And I said, uh, maybe some redhead in his childhood like made him mad. I don't know. Um, there's, <laughs> there's just some people that would stay up Taylor Smith. Some people are just mean. But yeah, I was like, I had a, I had a target on my back, and that kind of guy. I think that gave him a foothold because from the moment we were put in the unit, he was trying to get us out. I mean, that was common knowledge. He told us. He said, I don't want you in this. You know, there's m- myself and several other um, friends of artists. And because he had lost several photographers, there was like a swap of personnel. So he wanted his photographers back. He didn't want us. And that was just the first thing he could latch on to, like that letter to upper management. Because it didn't go to him. It went like several levels above him. And so then he got called into somebody's office like, you know, guess what this friends of artist did, even though it's doing nothing wrong. But... Um, Do you think there's a possibility that someone at the top was like, "We need to get rid of her, no matter like no matter what. This is not good that because she's like willing to talk publicly about stuff." No, no. I mean, the person I I knew the person that she sent it to, and actually, she would be surprised to know that I was on good terms with him. <laughs> so he didn't have a problem with me. So it. Um, people complain about the FBI all the time. Like if if my in my book, I called my former supervisor Gary. If that had happened with Gary, he would have laughed his b- 
butt off and said, oh my God, you know, and he would, he would have laughed at all. He was, he would have taken it like not seriously at all because he had the same thing happen to him, you know, when he was coming up and everything like people, people, they try to bring you down. So, but this, so Gary, the previous supervisor never would have been an issue. Been like, because he knew her, he knew how she was. Uh, the new supervisor, because he wanted friends of Gardas out of the unit, that was kind of like the first little chip that he could try to get a toehold on. So it, it didn't do the trick as far as upper upper management, you know, um, giving me the stink eye, but it did with my supervisor because he thought he had something on me. <laughs> It was also yeah. There's always like some man troll that's trying to get. I, I had this, I had the same thing. Just like some it, what we the one uh, female doctor at my work used to call them man child, like just trying to get rid of me and felt so threatened by me, even though they were in a higher position than me. It just was so weird. It's, yeah. So when you were working there at the FBI. So I, a couple of months ago, I don't know if you heard my interview with Dr. Daniel yes, Westcott, yes. but he is a forensic anthropologist. Yeah, I love him. He was awesome. He's a forensic anthropologist that and professor at the Body Farm at Texas State University, and he talked about the Body Farm. So it, it, I was interested to learn that you went there as part of your job as the yes. FBI. So could you explain to us what you were doing there? Yes. Because this was all around the same time, correct? Yes, actually, I went, okay. I went to two different body farms. So I went to the first body farm, the, uh, you know, the original at University of Tennessee. Um, I went there six times. Um, and so that was a research project that I started because, like, like I said, you know, we were trying to – I wanted to know, like, what does this nose look like in real life? And forensic artists, we did not have – um, we didn't have any, you know, proof. We didn't have a skull. In a perfect world, you would have a photo of a skull and a photo of the person in life. And then you'd go, oh, okay, like, start drawing some correlations. And we didn't have that. Um, so I, when I, I read um, Death Sager for like the second time, and when I found out that they had, um, I was going to donate my body, so this is how it started, is I saw that they were collecting, <laughs> this is how it all began, um, I saw that on the application, they were asking for driver's license photos. And then it was like the cartoon light bulb over my head. I was like, oh my God, they have photos and these are donors. So the FBI laboratory, being a laboratory, they do research. And so we were, you know, this is my previous bosses. I wrote up a research project. Let's go to the body farm and get all the donors they have that have life photos and we'll 3D scan them and then put together a reference collection for forensic artists. And so we went there six times. That's so so cool. It was, I just gave myself goosebumps. It was most rewarding. It was just like, oh my God. It was like, I'm starting to sound like a goofball right now, but it was so exciting. It was like we had, we collected over a hundred skulls. We had their skulls. We had their life photos. We had like the basic, you know, we had their anthropological information. So, you know, I started putting together, um, you know, I wanted to put together a reference guy and you know that of course you, you know obviously need to protect the privacy of the individuals but because they had been donated and they donated themselves it was allowed to be used for law enforcement and for research so my goal with that was to put together just like the composite catalog has facial references my goal was to put together a catalog of skeletal references to so have the skull and the face that was my goal which didn't pan out for you know reasons that <laughs> became clear later in the book, but that was my goal. So then, friends of could say, "Um, 
this knows that I'm working on a similar, you know, they can have some sort of guideline to, to look for. Everything else is pretty much anecdotal. And then uh, after that project ended, uh, another, um, there was another research project going on. And so it kind of intertwined with ours. So we went to the Texas body SAR and then we scanned uh, a number of skulls there too. And I'm pretty sure I met Dr. Westcott. He has a really big beard now. I was there, um, trying to remember when I was there easily 10 years ago. So, um, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty sure that's, that's yeah, cause I think he's person. been there for a while. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. He was there. It seems like he's been there. That's right. Re- that's so cool. Yeah. It's, it sounds like you were on the brink of, you know, because a lot of people don't realize that when you're working with skulls, it's it's a face and a face is considered an identifiable yes. feature. So you would have to get permission. And the problem is, is that the person's dead. Yes. So you can't really get permission from them anymore. Yeah. But when they did give permission to donate their body towards these types of things, it sucks that you weren't able to g- follow through with that. Yeah. Um. It- you were talking earlier about you guys used like a, a sketch pen and you weren't a, or pad and paper to sketch. And yes. you were talking about technology that exists on uh, with computers and things like that. I guess you could use like a program even on an iPad or something yeah. that, to do drawings at this point. But um, while you were there, because now... For example, even in this mummy book that I'm reading with my daughter, which is already probably dated at this point, a couple years old, they show that they use AI and they're using scanning of of skulls a lot and stuff mm-hmm. as opposed to using the typical clay to to yes. do a sculpture or to use drawings. Have did you see any of that before you had left the FBI that they were moving over to more advanced technology as far as using those identifying features? rather than using the traditional art materials that you were using? Um, yeah, to? actually, I um, uh, probably six months before I, I retired, I I was going to transition to digital sculpting because it was, it was the way things progressed that we always used to do 2D approximations in the FBI. And the 3D came along when the group got a scanner. So we had never done 3D. This is about a point of need to make as far as working with clay and skulls is you never put clay on the skull because the skull is evidence. Never, never, never. So that's why we'd scan the skull, make a copy and put, you know, sculpt with clay on the replica. Um, and then when, um, and we were doing that before they were like off the shelf 3D sculpting programs. You know, there were 3D sculpting programs out there, but they cost $50,000. So that's why we did clay on replicas. And then as, um, I'm not going to be able to think of the name. I think I'm not going to be able to think of the name of the software. But, but now there are, even five years ago, um, off-the-shelf 3D sculpting software. So I was I I had ordered a new computer. So I had a great big new souped-up computer. I had ordered this. I got the software in, and I was transitioning to sculpting digitally. Which to me, it's um, it's it's better. It's it's better all around. I mean, it would be faster. There's no need to print the skull. You can see through the flesh into the skull. So that's where I was going. And um, just as all that was coming together, um, I for- forces made me decide to retire. I retired. Yeah, that that's kind of explained in the book. It was um, just, I guess, to be like 
long, long story short, it was, um, by then I was in a new unit with a fabulous supervisor and things were really pretty great. And it was just sometimes I never thought I would leave friends of but, um, just after a while, it was like, I, yeah, uh, some things you just can't, there's only so much stress you can put up with because there was, it was yeah, never, I understand it, that. 100%. It was never gone. The threat was always back there. Like the, the threat that the not so veiled threat was taking my clearance and without a clearance, you're dead meat. You can't work anywhere and you're, yeah. you're dead. So, um, so when I, when I, when those storm clouds started, I was like, you know what? And then also, um, you know, I had lost the, just less than a year before, you know, my mom and my brother died within two months of each other. And that was like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fine. I mean, but you know, things like that, you know, you start assessing your life and you look around and you go, why am I, why am I doing this? Why am I putting up with this? And what else can I do? And you know, after something like that, you know, you start thinking. And that's when, that's when I was like, you know what? I was, I was planning on retiring at 62. And when I was 58, it's like, I'm eligible. Let's, and my husband and I were like, let's just do something completely and utterly different. And that's what we did. And we moved to Vegas. <laughs> he was probably, yeah, I was going to say like, he was probably, because when, when I was working at the hospital and they were giving me a hard time, there would be times that I would just come home and cry uh, every day. Yes. Like, over over some bullshit right. right and my husband finally was just like i can't have you yes. like this anymore yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. and it it sucks because when you love your job so much and it's not that you don't love your job you love your job it's just the people are making it absolutely brutal to work there. yeah well when so i have kind of like a juicy question oh, okay. for you. when i interned at the <laughs> When I interned at the Philly ME's office, I remember one day I was up in the offices and I saw these giant posters that were black and white and it had this really disturbing looking child on it that yes. was dead. Yes. Like looked yes. like he was around five years old. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is this? I said to the medical examiner that I was interning with, what the hell is this thing yeah. doing in the closet? And he was like, oh, that's the boy in the box case. And I, I was, I didn't know anything about it. And mm -hmm. when I learned about it, it it was crazy. It was a very high profile case that happened in Philadelphia where a young yes. boy was found dead in a box. And they recently have just figured out who the kid is, which mm -hmm. is, which is crazy. But I, I thought it was so cool that there was this old, it, I, it wasn't the actual boy in the box in the closet. It was just these posters that they right. had made up at the time that said, do you know who this is because nobody knew who this kid was mm -hmm. and nobody had reported that a kid was missing. So like five-year-olds don't just appear dead that nobody knows that they were missing. Right. 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 Um, and I thought that cool piece of Philadelphia forensic history was so cool that it was just in the closet there because the office was old. As you were saying with CS CSI and everything, there was a Philadelphia forensic show that was on at some point that was showing the medical examiner's office in Philadelphia and it was all shiny and stainless steel. <laughs> and I thought like the medical examiner's office, well, I think that they moved since then, but at the time it was very seventies wood paneling, just yeah. old building cubicles, all that fake wood stuff. But um, anyway, I thought it was really cool that, that there was this, this old Philadelphia forensic history there at the office 
when you and you said when you started working at the FBI, they said, oh, here's our room of skulls or whatever. Were there some cases that were there that you were familiar with that that you couldn't believe you were seeing the actual real evidence in front of your eyes that they still had there? Yes. Um, it was older cases. Um, what was the book? Um, was it Jeffrey, Mc- Jeffrey McDonald? He was a doctor and um, he was convicted of killing. This was like during the 60s or 70s, um, killing his wife, his wife and his kids. And he was a military doctor, fatal Fatal Vision, that was the book. I remember reading Fatal Vision before I ever thought of being in the FBI. And then in the archives, there were just like these big, you know, gray drawer, gray cabinets that had lots of casework, lots of exhibits from years before. So I saw, you know, the crime scene photos from that Jeffrey McDonald case. And it was like, it was just, it was, I'm glad they were black and white at that, you know. Now, you know, within a few months, I was looking at a lot of gory things. But um, yeah, I remember seeing the the trial work for the Jeffrey McDonald case. That was the first thing that stuck in my mind was like, I know this one. So that was, um, and I kind of feel like an insider, like, ooh, I saw this. But, you know, it's just kind of like the everyday work at the FBI. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah, I worked on this. That's not, not like blase or anything, but me, I was completely new and geeked out. Like, I'm going through this like it's a treasure trove. Um, like, just looking through all the files. And some of the other artists were like, why do you look at that for? It's like, because it's really interesting. So it's, yeah. Is it hard when you're sitting around, like, especially during the 9-11 time, it was horrible. I mean, I was I was in my early 20s, but I vividly remember everything that was going on at the time. Like, yeah. you're sitting around at a dinner party or something, and everybody knows you work there and they're you know they're people are trying to talk about how are they how do they figure out who the hijackers are how do they figure out this how where are all these people that are missing and stuff right. people have questions did did how is it hard for you to just keep like keep that in you know just because it you're saying it was very emotional yeah. so you know, sometimes it feels better when you could talk about stuff when it upsets you but you didn't really have anyone to talk it to. was yeah, I, I wouldn't ever, and I didn't want to talk about it. Like later, my husband and I weren't married at that point, um, you know, so I would call him and, you know, he, you know, he noticed that I was down. It was just like, at that point, I, that was during, you know, scanning all these photos and everything. And, but the photos we were scanning, they were all like birthday parties and graduations and all these happy events. And then but you're knowing that this person is gone. So that was... You know, you start, you know, you look at pictures of people smiling and happy and you go, oh, that's really nice. And then you go, then you remember why you're scanning the picture and this person is gone. So it was, yeah. Um, so I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it later. It was like, I just tried to, you know, tried to try. Yeah. And, you know, some of the, um, yeah, I had to, had to do some, um, child abduction, um, Oh my God. Some pedophile. Those, yeah, those, those you have to, yeah, before, um, before that, like normally we wouldn't do that. There's, um, like task force or special team at the FBI and, um, at other agencies, like at the national center, missing exploited children that will look at these photos and then they try to sanitize them so they can 
you know, figure out, um, can they figure out what motel this is based on the bedspread and the curtains and things like that. Um, so, you know, I did, I did a few of those, not many, um, that was enough. So yeah, you just, I, I actually talked to, um, one of the FBI psychologists, she was a psychologist at the academy and just in a discussion, not anything formal, said, okay, I'm going to have to look at these photos. I know they're coming in and I don't want to look at them. And how do I handle it? And, you know, she's like just trying to compartmentalize it. And I just had to kind of disassociate and go, it's pixels on the screen, like zooming way in. They would, you know, then it's just all these little pixels and stuff, just trying to put it aside. And yeah, I'm, I'm very glad I only had to do a few of those. And actually, um, I found out just by chance that one of uh, one little girl was recovered. Um, just one of the photos I worked on. And it's, it's a huge team of people doing these things. It's not, it's not like, oh, you know, I did this photo and she was found. But it was just, I was on a tour at the National Center. And uh, this image comes up and they said she was recovered. And I said, oh, I know her. That's, you know, one of the you know how you had the boy in a box and this was like, you know, boots or, you know, she wore cowboy boots or something. So it was just, it, that was nice. It's like, okay, you know, I had to see this, but then later, yes, there was a happy ending. She was found and she's safe and retired. Um, yeah. So does that happen that when, I guess that's the question, like the follow through, do you, cause a lot of times I'll do an autopsy or something. Well, it's it's better now when I was working at the hospital and I was so in depth, but sometimes I do like per diem autopsies and I'll do it and then I submit the slides and everything and then I really don't know, like I kind of think what I know how the person died, but then I don't really ever hear the yeah. follow through of the case, which I yeah. hate. <laughs> I love like a full circle thing. So do your bosses sit down with you and say like, hey, this case we've been working on was solved? Or is that something like you heard on the news? No, I mean, some of the things would, wouldn't make the news like we did. Um, usually the way I found out, and you would never, you didn't always find out. It would basically be if the agent, like if I went out and did, I remember I did some, uh, you know, some composite sketches. And then, you know, the agent emailed me. It was like, you know, we got him, we got him. And this was something that didn't go and didn't make the news. It was a different thing. Um and I would, I would have the capability because the FBI has, you know, the whole database that, you know, I could probably have gone in and looked up and found out. I mean, I could have called the agent after, you know, because I worked with a lot of agents. Um, I could have called the detective to go, hey, what happened? But I guess I didn't want to annoy him. I thought, you know, I did my job. That was a tool for them to do their job. And then now they do their work. And... I just was never comfortable calling him back and going like, hey, what happened? Did it work? And, you know, lots of times things did and they might, you know, sometimes they would call like really or email like really ecstatic, like, you know, oh my God, this is great. And sometimes you'd never hear. And then you'd find out later that, you know, um, you'd find out like I saw things, I would see things in the newspaper, like, you know, a pedophile was arrested and I was going, oh, we worked on that. And, uh, oh, this is funny. Went to my girlfriend, Liz. Hi, Liz. Uh, she called me one time and she said, Oh, I just saw this one, uh, approximation and this person was ID. And, you know, did you work on that? And I was like, Who, what? And she sent me the link and I was like, Oh, and I said, Yeah, that is mine. I had no, my girlfriend found out she was ID before I did. And I worked at the FBI. Liz thought that was hysterical. Oh, my God. <laughs> <I'd seen laughs> before I did. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, 
I should have probably kept track of like everything I did. Um, and I, I kept good notes and I kept good records and everything, but, um, I, I don't know. I kind of was like, okay, I did the work I, that, and I would put it aside and go on to the next thing. I know. I should, I always think about that too. I get so mad because people say like, how many autopsies have you did? Did you do this? And, and I have a pretty good recollection of like what I've mm-hmm. seen, but I really wish that because sometimes it just one will pop in my head and I'll be like, oh, I forgot I did that. Like, I wish I wrote down more, you know? Yeah. It's just like I feel like you would do that now, but it's just like back then you just go to work and do your thing. And you just, you know, I try to just take in as much as I can in my memory and that's it. But so let's I don't I don't want to get into why exactly you left and everything because we need to leave some stuff for your book. (laughs) Um, But. Since you we you did leave now and you're not doing that anymore, so are you still interested in the the whole like true crime world? Are you do you listen to podcasts and uh, TV shows or things like that, or are you kind of like I'm over that part of my <laughs> life and I'm just doing something else completely now? Uh, for the most part, I'm over it, but I mean I'm still interested in it. And uh, the the true crime things that. I'm interested in, I just watched this one. You might've heard of it. They called it Mostly Harmless. It's about a hiker. It's on Netflix. It's a great documentary. But that was, um, you know, that was a, a body that had been found in the woods and, you know, the internet was trying to, trying to identify him. Um, so I'm interested in things that are um, like the investigation part. I don't want to read about or see horrible murders like the, um, this is a joke between me and my husband, that the, the true crime stories I'll watch are more like the husband wives killing each other sort of thing <laughs> rather than home invasions because it's like, I know my husband's not going to kill me, so I'm safe there. So I know that sounds terrible, but I just, it, no, it's it not. It's, me it, you're just, you're like just, a, <laughs> yeah, it does to me too because I would be like watching forensic files all the time. My husband's a firefighter and he doesn't sleep at home sometimes. And then I would be so freaking scared at night because I would be like, oh, my God, like I saw this case last week and the guy broke in the house and he didn't even know who she was. Like something that yes. I could say, oh, that could happen to me. Exactly. And and then I wouldn't sleep. I'd be up all night, like scared to death. Exactly. I had even when they when the girls, my girls were younger, I would have them sleep in bed with me because I was so scared. <laughs> And then I and then I was like, I can't watch yeah. this stuff anymore. I just can't, I can't do it until he's retired. Maybe I'll start watching it again. Yeah, or something. I, I can't either. I'm with you there. It's like, uh, like I said, I know it sounds terrible. It's like, if it's a husband wife thing, you know, that's you know, I, that I can watch. But uh, you know, that I'll be gone in the dark. Do you like that? Just ter- terrified me. The um, the Golden State. Is it the Golden State killer? The one that they identified through the genetic genome? Oh yeah. And Michelle. Yeah, that one's real. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was brutal. I I wonder if it's like because for me and you, like I've been at the medical examiner's office and I've seen people like with my own two eyes, multiple people that have been murdered. It's real for me. And the same with you. You've seen all these skulls with people that have been killed. I wonder if it makes it even more scarier for us because it's not just we're not some girl that works in the office at and and is watching this on TV and doesn't really know how horrible and gruesome it could be and how scary it is. Right. You know? 
there's that element of the realness, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> What's really comical, this is, this is, this is funny, is that, you know, I've been, I've been to the body farm and I've seen, you know, horrible decomp and been right next to it. And, you know, um, that I can do because it's fascinating. And it was like, it was interesting. But if there's this really bloody movie on TV, I can't watch it. I, and, and, like torture. Like I never watched Dempster and I knew they were bad guys. He's only torturing bad guys, but, some stuff just, it stays in my brain and I can't, you know, um, I, I can't get it out of my brain. I, I don't want that in my brain. Like at the, if I can tell you this real quick, at the FBI Academy they had um, in the behavioral science unit, the one uh, basically for the silence of the lambs, that was that unit. <laughs> so, yeah. So, oh, that's yeah. Cool. So that's, they're literally like three or four floors, um, like the third or fourth basement. They're really down there. Um so they had the uh, psychologist I was telling me about. She had all the you know, drawings and notebooks of, like, Son of Sam, like all the drawings they did. So all these serial killers and all of their artwork. And, she, you know, it was like a once-in-a-lifetime thing because these things are not open to the public. And so she had them all out, and she's explaining things. And it's like, I can't, I can't have these drawings in my head because these men were drawing these things in prison, basically, you know, reliving the murders that they had committed. And I don't want what was in their head in my head. I, I, I walked down the hallway. We had a, um, a class. It was one of our facial, facial imaging classes. And they were fascinated. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I don't, don't want it in my head. Yeah, I, I understand that yeah. because I feel the same way about a lot of that. It's scary. Like when when that guy, the guy killed the the college students in Idaho. Yes. yes. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm sure you've heard yep. about that case. It It's just like, I don't know when, especially it freaked me out when it happened. But then when they released his photo and video of him being arrested, his face like scared the shit out of me. Like his eyes are so creepy. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I just, it, it, it like shook me, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know these people. I don't know. I don't know anything about it, but something about it. I just was like, especially because you, like you said, when it's a husband and wife, you could see they get in fights all the time and they, and they kill each other and the passion. And, but when it's strangers and people yes. don't know th that they're being stalked and all this stuff, it's just so scary to me. It's all right. Let's utterly talk about something me. a little bit more cheery. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's um, let's talk about your personal life. So you talked about your husband a couple times. Yes. When so at what point of your whole career and transition from Navy into FBI and every and John Hopkins too? When did you meet him? How'd you meet him? And when did you guys get married? Uh, so I, we met um, when I was waiting to go into the FBI. So it wasn't a sure thing that I was. Well, you know, I was going. I'm sorry. Let me start that over. We met <laughs> when I was waiting to go in the FBI. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, um, my brain. And we met. We actually met in person at the lunch. And I was I was recently divorced, and so was he. And it was just like just friends. Like I don't I don't want anything to do with men. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I've got my cat, and I'm done. And you know, but we just started talking. And it's like this guy's really just wonderful and. We were we were friends, and then I just fell in love with the guy because he's amazing and he's wonderful, and he's going to be embarrassed at this, but I don't care. Um, so yeah, so he. <laughs> so, How does yeah, he, he feel about what? It, what does he do for a living? 
Uh, well, he he um uh he's a he was a uh, and he's still doing it a videographer and a producer. So he worked. He also worked for the federal government. So he was he was making um, kind of like news stories, you know, things they would have a news channel sort of about some of the um, the work and events that these military agencies would do. And he would go out one time. Oh my God, he was on the back of an airplane. It was they had the the back open, and he was showing me video. And he's like, oh "Why got a harness on?" I was like, "Don't." I'm so I'm so glad you didn't. He was like, it was so cool. I was flying in the back of this and it was open and all I had was a harness. And I'm like, thank you very much. But yeah, no. So <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I'm so glad you only showed me that. That's cool. That so after. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So he's very creative. What it, What's he think? Yeah. So that's cool to be because my husband's also very creative. It, it's good to like live in a house that because sometimes I have like outrageous ideas and, you know, when you have an artist that's a husband too, then yes. you can <laughs> express those in your house or any, they understand that you say, oh, I completely hate this. I need to change it or whatever. He's, how's he feel about you? Like knowing that you're, you're handling human skulls all day at work and stuff. I mean, he was just pretty cool with it, obviously. Yeah. He was like, well, sometimes I would come home and say, oh my God, we got this one skull in her own, you know. Um, this this one thing in this decomp I saw, and he's like, I I, I don't want to know, like I don't want to know. And I was like, No, it's really not that. It's really not that gross. And he's like, No, no, like don't tell me, don't tell me. So uh, it was funny. I, I can tell you this was this was funny. One time, somebody from um, we had one of the anthropologists from uh, Body Farm come and uh, teach in our class, and she had to transport some skulls in, and she didn't want to leave them in her hotel overnight. So we had a because we had an alarm, so she said, can I store them at your house? I said, well, let me ask my husband. So I was like, sweet, how did you feel about having some human skulls in the den? And he was like, let me think about it. <laughs> and then he was like, okay, and I said, it won't freak you out. And he goes, as long as you don't go like, ah, you know, and like scare me with a skull. <laughs> and after he said, it was just really um, like eye-opening. He said, it's just... That's just what you end up as. You know, it wasn't spooky. It wasn't scary. It wasn't gross. It was just, you're just, you're just skulls in a box. You know, that's what we all end up as, you know? So yeah, he's, he's, he's had skulls in his yeah. den. So. It, it's like he's, he probably has a bunch of like one liners of what husband hears this question from their wife. <laughs> Can yeah, we just yeah. store these 10 skulls in our house overnight? Just can we put the alarm on? You don't care that there's like 10 dead people <laughs> downstairs while we're sleeping, right? Yeah. The cops you can't be like, like that in this field thinking there's ghosts and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, what if you had like a, a reason, like, a, I don't know, a fire or something in the middle of the night and they show up, right. they'd be like, um, what's happening here? I said, I promised they were already um, dead. Aside from... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So we know that you're not doing the forensic art anymore, but I, I mean, you're an artist. So, are, yes. what are you do? What are your other interests besides being in, interested in forensics? Like, do you garden? Do you draw? Do you still do art and stuff? I'm, I am doing anything that's not a skull. So right now, I'm, I'm actually. <laughs> so don't tell my husband. No, I'm, I'm working on a painting right now, which is just new territory for me. I've tried to. I, I just jumped into a big project. And I'm not going to say exactly what it is because my husband's going to hear this and like, I want to be able to finish it, but I'm actually working on like a big thing. So I, um, 
anything that's I don't see I don't like creepy stuff. I mean, no. I like some things that macabre. You know, um, there there's there's a there's a level of creepiness that I really like, but it, it depends. It's like I I have to see it. So I, I like um, I like humor and just like a little bit of creepiness. So uh, it's hard to explain, but I like humor in art, and I like something things that are surprising. So like you know, you might look at look at a painting and go, oh, that's a really nice painting, and you look really close, and there's like a cow's lying in the background, like obscurely, just things that are silly or maybe a bit surreal, fun surrealism. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to figure out when I'm, I'm trying to, I'm figuring it out. It's, this is a time where I get to, um, I get frustrated because I'm like, ah, I can't do this. I can't do that. And my husband's like, this is the time where you get to play and do whatever you want. And so just play and have fun. And so I'm like, okay, this, so after being so work-oriented for so long where you have a deadline, it has to be done, it has to be right, it's like, this is artwork. You're allowed to, you're allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to crumple up the paper and throw it away. So that's what I'm learning now. Yeah, that, it, it, it does seem like a weird transition to just turn it, it off is. from what you were doing. It is. Well, thanks yeah. so much for being here with us today. Oh, Everyone needs to get your book. It's called Clay and Bones, and it's available now. Do you have? Uh, well, you are going to reactivate your website, I hope, because I bet you a lot of people listening to this today are interested. <laughs> you know, um, I do. Uh, I do have a website. It's, it's for the author website. I actually did um, repost things. A friends. It's a forensic one hundred and one about. How to become a how to become a forensic artist. So I actually did put that on my current site, my uh, my author site. So I, I will put some things back up. That is the one thing I did put up because somebody wrote to me on Instagram and says they want to be a forensic artist, and um, you know she said, "Oh, back in high school, I asked some forensic artist and they wouldn't give me the time of the day." I was like, "Oh, I'm going to put that on my website." So I did. So yeah. Yeah, that that kind of stuff makes me mad when people aren't willing to help the yeah, next like generation the, of people. My girlfriend here. Do they have? Co- sorry. Oh, go well, ahead. no, my girlfriend here. She puts it. She's like, you know, women need to support women. It's just like send the elevator back down when you make it to the top. Hit the bottom and like help somebody else on their way up. You know, and it's like, yeah, like I I I, I don't understand exactly. I don't differently. Yeah, I don't either. That's. It's it's really upsetting when I hear stuff like that. Do you think that there's college? I mean, I don't even know anything about this, but I feel like there must be some kind of college programs at this point that are geared towards people that want to do stuff like that. For forensic art, there really isn't unless you create your own curriculum. And I only know of one artist so far who did that. And she her name is escaping me because she's wonderful. Um, but she went to the University of Tennessee. And so she created because it's the body of art. She was able to create a forensic art program. And there's actually a, a forensic art master's program, and I think Dundee, Scotland or something, um, which I'm sure is a wonderful program. But there's, because of the nature of forensic art, there's no, uh, it's not like being a, a doctor or, or, or something where you need to have certain credentials and a piece of paper that you are now, you know, you are now a forensic artist. That doesn't, that doesn't exist in forensic art. Um, it's it's just one of those jobs that for in most for most forensic artists most forensic artists work in law enforcement agencies like state um, sheriff's office you know count uh, city police things like that 
and they're mostly doing composites and it's an adjunct, it's, it's a collateral duty. So it would be, for instance, artist Sonage, it would be um, it just too narrow a pool for, um, to have a college program in it, I believe. And there's just not the jobs. There's yeah, just and that's something, that's something important to say, too, because you were saying you only worked with a few people, right, that did your job? Yeah, I mean, the full-time positions, and I, I believe this is, on, this is in my post um, on my website, is that the full-time forensic artists, there are very few, maybe under 50, nobody really knows, not many. They work at, um, we work at the state and federal level. So those are like where the full-time forensic art positions are. The other forensic art positions, like I said, they're collateral duties. They're done by people in law enforcement, detectives, crime scene techs, whatever. Um, a person in law enforcement who had artistic talent and their boss said, hey, you can draw, you're going to be our forensic artist now. Or they had the gumption to say, I want to do composite sketches, and they create the job. It's There's no money in law enforcement. There's no money to hire forensic artists. So it's one of these collateral duties where somebody who is very motivated, and this is usually where it happens, you have a motivated person in law enforcement who can draw that says, this is what I want to do, and they volunteer their services as needed. They're not paid extra. They, they yeah, do it because they love it. That's really important to, to yeah. note. Because it like because I I feel like I'm an artist too and a, a scientist too I I feel like I would be actually interested in that too that kind of job and just but people need to understand that you you really have to kind of make it yes. happen for yourself in a way it's not as easy as just going to school to be a nurse go to school get a job get hired exactly although they have to be good too it's just in a different it's in a different kind of way. And it's it's the same could be said, like every every painter isn't going to be Picasso, right? right? Like <laughs> I, Yeah. It's just it's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean it just it just pains me when, you know, I hear people they want to be a friends of artists and you know, they're they're taking classes, like, you know, there's lots of you know commercial classes out there. And it's like, well, that's great if you wanna you know, if you wanna learn about it and everything, but um it's just there's no jobs. There's very, very few jobs. And the vast majority of them are in law enforcement. I've got grief for this, but it's the truth because skulls are evidence. A composite drawing is evidence. You're dealing with evidence. So it's only that's how it is. It is what it, it is, is, you know? It's sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but someone that's motivated, someone with artistic skill, they can be in, in academia. Anything that might cross paths is law enforcement. You would have the potential to be able to do uh, like a facial approximation. If, if you work at a university and you're in anatomy or anthropology, guess what? If you put forth the effort, you could probably do some facial approximations for the medical examiner. It's completely possible. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much again. It was awesome that talking to you. That was great talking you. to you. Yeah. This is a thrill. This is great. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Mother Knows Death. As a reminder, my training is as a pathologist assistant. I have a master's level education and specialize in anatomy and pathology education. I am not a doctor and I have not diagnosed or treated anyone, dead or alive, without the assistance of a licensed medical doctor. This show, my website, and social media accounts are designed to educate and inform people based on my experience working in pathology 
so they can make healthier decisions regarding their life and well-being. Always remember that science is changing every day and the opinions expressed in this episode are based on my knowledge of those subjects at the time of publication. If you are having a medical problem, have a medical question, or are having a medical emergency, please contact your physician or visit an urgent care center, emergency room, or hospital. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Mother Knows Death on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks.